All right. Let's see. We are in a new book. New book, new book. There's a happy dance that goes with the new book, so there you go. Um, warning for that. We will be here until next year. We will have a couple of breaks. Let's see. Break for Reformation, uh, celebration of the Reformation on the Sunday before the anniversary of Martin Luther nailing the 95 Theses. Uh, two weeks for Thanksgiving. And then the four weeks for Christmas. So there you go. So four Sundays of Advent. And actually, wait, that's is that this year or is that next year? Is Christmas what day is Christmas this year? It is this year. So it'll be five Sundays break for Christmas this year. Four Sundays for Advent and then Christmas morning, and then we'll be back to Colossians next year after that. So we will be through through in Colossians into next year. You have been warned. So at least you now have a general idea of what's going on. And no, I'm not telling you what's happening coming up next after that. Now, prepare yourselves. We have as you can see, a lot of ground to cover. <laughs> now, why do we do this? Because remember, I'm always telling you, we do not airdrop into a book. That begins even at the very beginning of a new book, especially a letter. So if you remember back to when we went through James, how many times in understanding what James was telling the church, did it matter, one, who James was, and two, who the church actually was, undergoing persecution, having to live in a world that is hating them and is trying to go against the principles that James is expanding upon. That same thing is true in all of the epistles. So to take a few minutes to cover the blindingly obvious things that I know you know, but they are going to be important to us later on, and I can't assume you know it, so the only way for me to guarantee that you should know it is what? For me to say it. So that's what we're going to do. Now, a couple of notes because some of the initial details are going to be covered in this as we, as we go through, so we will do that as we get there. Um, this is one of the Pauline epistles. This is a prison epistle. We are going to die on that hill because if you go back in history, the authorship of Paul, the, let me rephrase this, let me put this in English. Paul being the author of Colossians is attested by Irenaeus, Clement of Alexandria, Tertullian, Origen, and Eusebius of Caesarea. Now, that, those names may not mean a ton to you, but if you're a person who studies church history, that's the dudes. Though Those are the guys. To go against them in church history is to go against church history. There is no one who questions Paul being the author of Colossians until the 19th century. Take a wild guess what country he's from. Germans. It's always, when anytime it's bad theology, it always comes from the Germans. I don't know why that is, but it does. Now, you know my rules on this. If you are the first person in 2,000 years to think something about the Bible, what are you? Wrong. You're wrong. Like, no one before me in 2,000 years of church history has ever questioned this thing. I shall question it. You aren't that smart, dude. You may be brilliant. You aren't that smart. And not everyone who came before you for 2,000 years was a complete nincompoop, okay? We have to give humanity some credit. Just because they didn't have iPhones doesn't mean they didn't know anything. So, we are going to stick with Pauline authorship because the only people to question it don't question it for about 1,800 years. And then they try to use the same arguments that prove Paul's the author to say that proves Paul's not the author. So if you can figure that one out, God bless you. We're going to skip that part. Now, written during the Acts 28 imprisonment. So if you're reading your book of Acts and you see Paul living in the little house basically under guard for two years, that is your time frame. So we're talking 60 to 62 AD, somewhere in that ballpark. Now, what's a Colossian? 
someone who lives in, okay, here's the fun part of the Bible, you ready? Because we're not using Greek pronunciations, but we're we're anglicizing words, I have heard Colossae, 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 pick one, go with it, that's your pronunciation. I will probably change how I say the name of this town 17 times in the next four months, okay? You have been warned, I will decide which one I like that day and go with it. What you do need to know is that it is a city in Phrygia. And it has nothing to do with the temperature. It's about 100 miles east of Ephesus, so real quick, because I'm not going to drag it out, I'm just going to run this way. So if you're on this side, you're just going to have to strain your eyes for a second. So we are east of Ephesus, which is here, so we are in this area right here. So we are in this spot of Asia Minor, which is now modern-day Turkey. There you go. If you have a book of maps in your Bible, it is probably listed on there someplace. It is in the same region as the seven churches that are written letters to in the book of Revelation. Colossae is actually mentioned in the book to Laodicea. And if you've never read that section of Revelation, I encourage you to read Revelation 3 and see if you can find Colossae. It'll be fun. So if you find it by the end of the service, come let me know, okay? (laughs) Or you can come back and let me know next week. Mostly Gentile city. Just so you know, every time I mention Colossae now, because I've walked over to the map, I will point at the map for no reason whatsoever. Just like if I mention a person, I point to where they sit normally. Same concept. So because I've now pointed it out on the map, I will point at the map like a nitwit. My Vanna White impression, you know. Mostly a Gentile city. There is some Jewish influence. This is an interesting uh, letter and city for Paul because Paul has not been here. The church was founded by Epaphras. It was founded during Paul's stay in Ephesus. So Paul has actually not met the Colossians personally. He has met people from the church, but he has not been to the city or met the people. That's going to be important because it explains why the letter is written the way that it is. This is not a personal encouragement. This is a doctrinal understanding because this church has a problem, and it is not a fully formed problem. It will not be fully formed for the next uh, 40 years or so, but as we've talked about many times, ideas don't just spring up out of nowhere. They form slowly over time. What the Colossians are dealing with is something called proto-Gnosticism, which is the beginnings of the Gnostic heresy. Now, if you don't know what Gnosticism is, I don't blame you. I will give you a quick rundown. It is dualism mixed with paganism. Now, what that means is, okay, dualism. If you want to understand dualistic theology, just think Star Wars. There is a good side of the force and there is a bad side of the force and they're always fighting for domination and they're trying to find balance. That is a dualistic religion. There is good, there is evil, they are always at war and the goal of life is to have the good conquer the evil before the evil conquers the good. So what Gnosticism tries to do is it takes the idea of God and his righteousness and Satan and sin and makes them equal forces that are battling against each other. This is a more prevalent idea in the world than you would give it credit because this is how most people think about the world. If you've ever encountered any modern-day New Age teaching where they're always preaching to you about, you need to find your balance and need to be centered. This is a dualistic idea. You are out of balance because you have tilted to one side or the other and you need to meditate and hum something or other and that is supposed to reset your auras or something. I don't get it because it's weird, okay? It's not a new idea. It begins all the way back here in the first century. Now, what the Gnostics did was they took Christian language and this idea of dualism and they added paganism to it. So if you'd like to understand just how weird this gets, I will give you a really, really short rundown. This is like this is like the reader's digest version in like blurb form. So 
there would be like one God who created and then there's another God. See, he's the mean, nasty, evil one. That's why he orders all the killing. And then there's the nice God who's trying to overcome him, but he's also a manifestation of something else, which is also the one who manifests prophets and manifests other gods and other religions. And are you confused yet? Because it is very confusing. They take everything, throw it into the soup pot, put Christian names on it, and go, look, 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 we're just like Jesus. Isn't that fun? And you're, because they're using the same names, because they're using the same concepts, if you're not paying attention, you go, well, that doesn't quite sound right, but, all right, rule for life. Anytime something doesn't quite sound right, do you know what it is? It's wrong. It's just wrong. If it doesn't quite sound right, it's, it's wrong. Run. Run, screaming from the room after doing what? Throwing things. Okay, making sure we're on the same Yeah, I'm telling you. you, you <laughs> Denny ever comes in with a dent in his forehead, will know what happened. <laughs> All right, so that's beginning to afflict the church in Colossae. Colossae, pick your pronunciation. Paul is writing a not systematic theology like you would expect out of Romans, but he is writing a grounded system enough where they can be grounded in the truth so that they can go out and confront the world. Now, I point that out because this is how you have to live, Christian. This is why these books are still here and why they are still so valuable to you. Nothing has changed. I just made mention that you want to see ancient Gnosticism in its new form, um, go watch Oprah. I'm, and I'm not even mostly kidding about that. If you want to understand the concept of new age or finding your balance, you can find this idea in nutrition books. Like, what's happening is your gut microbiome is out of balance. And if you'll eat this, you know, kale, because kale is always the cure for everything. I've discovered this. This is what all the nutrition people are trying to tell me, is I have to eat more kale. I refuse. <laughs> yeah. It, there you go. It's kale, seaweed, and bugs. Those are, the, those are the things that I need, apparently. That if you'll do that, you'll bring balance to your life. Now, maybe. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not a nutritionist. And I don't really care. The point is, it takes religious language and brings it into a field of science. Be very wary of that. You don't want to use religious terminology to define scientific realities, just like you don't want to try to use scientific terminology to define religious realities. We have influence, but we do not mix and mingle the two. Because when you do that, you are changing the understandings of the foundations for science. So we've done this before. We're going to get there, I promise. <laughs> Your Christianity should influence everything. It should influence how you vote. It should influence how you talk to your spouse. It should influence how you raise your kids. It should influence how you do your job. It should also influence how you see the world. If you do not have a foundation in God, you do not have a basis to actually do science. However, if you have a foundation in a misunderstanding of God, not only do you not have a foundation with which to do science, but you no longer have a foundation upon which you can define science. You begin to impart religious ideals and understandings to your scientific outcomes. This is the worst of all possible outcomes because the lines are no longer blurred, they are destroyed, and everything is nothing, and nothing becomes everything. You want to have a firm foundation on who God is, what that means for you, what he has done for you, and how you live in light of that, and then you take that understanding into the fields of the world and operate within them in light of those realities. Does that make sense? In order to do that, you have to have that foundation. That is why Paul is writing Colossians. So you guys ready to dive in? Okay. We're going to get really far, so don't, don't, don't let me lose you, all right? Verse 1, Paul, stop. <laughs> Sorry, I, you knew I was going to do something like that, too. You knew it. 
But this is important. What's a Paul? You, you need to know these things because who you are has a lot of influence in the world, and especially when you are Paul. Now, first things first. Paul's a Roman citizen from Tarsus. So, ooh, just because I have an excuse. To the map. So, <laughs> I take every excuse you know that. Tarsus. Dan put it on the map for us. So, he's from there. Roman citizen. This is important. He has free run of the Roman Empire. And by the way, the Roman Empire stretches on that map from west off of the map to east off of the map. So that map isn't big enough to even show you the Roman Empire of Paul's day. So Paul has access to all of that because he is born a Roman citizen. We know this from the book of Acts. Paul said to them, they have beaten us in public without trial, men who are Romans. They have thrown us into prison, and now they're sending us away secretly? No. Let them come themselves and bring us out, because it is not lawful for you to do that to a Roman citizen. Paul has that right because he is a Roman citizen. But beyond that, he is a Pharisee from the tribe of Benjamin. We know that because Paul tells us. He tells the Philippian church that he was circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. He uses that to his advantage when the crowds are trying to get at him in Acts 21, and he causes a little bit of division so he can make a, a helpful escape there. Now, why does that matter? Well, matters for two reasons, real quick. Paul has a foot in both worlds, and not in a way that divides him. Paul understands the benefits of being a citizen of the most powerful empire in existence up until that point. But he also, because he is a Pharisee of the tribe of Benjamin, he is a, an, an, an excellent student of the law and an understanding of Israel and what is going on. He is able to interact with both the Old Testament on behalf of Israel and to explain the Old Testament to the Gentiles. That's why this is so important. Paul is, before he even realizes it, being groomed from birth by God for the work that God would have him to do. You want to be able to refute the false teachings of the synagogues in these various cities. You need someone who can bring you the truth of the Old Testament as it points to Christ. You need to bridge the gap on who Christ is to a Gentile audience. Who better to do that than someone who understands intimately what the Old Testament is, what it means, how it has been abused, and how it is rightly pointing to Christ. We've said this before. The New Testament is a book without a beginning. You can't just start in Matthew and read and make sense of this. You act, because I mean, th just think about this real quick. Jesus is telling, just think about, take Mark. Take Mark because it's the shortest gospel. People like to start with Mark. Jesus' ministry begins with, he's coming into the region of Galilee and proclaiming, repent and believe the gospel. Repent from what? Good news about what? <laughs> or if you're reading Matthew, it's constantly talking about the coming of the kingdom. Kingdom of who? Kingdom of what? What are we building? Who, who's the king? We have an empire. What, what's going on here? You actually need to have an understanding of the promises of God and how they are fulfilled in Christ. Because otherwise, what is Christ fulfilling if there are no promises to understand? Paul bridges this gap, and because he knows it so well, when you have questions, he has answers. When you are confused, he can explain. His background in the Old Testament is vital. Now, if that was all we knew about Paul, that he was a Roman citizen from Tarsus of the tribe of Benjamin and a Pharisee, do you care? I'm being honest. Do you care? Do you want to listen to him talk? I mean, if I brought a guy in 
And I told him, look, look, he's an expert. He's got a PhD from Oxford, and he's from all these places. Would you like to come listen to him speak? <laughs> Some of you honest people are going, that doesn't really sound like a fun afternoon. I don't really think. I mean, if you're weird like maybe Lou and I, you might be like, you know what? I might be interested in that. But, but most people are going, eh, there's a game on. You know, the Bears might be playing. There's, you know, there's stuff. You give, me the, you give me the perfect excuse. You know, no, no, I would, I would love to, but you see, I got to go see a guy about a thing, and we got to do some stuff, and I'll, I won't be back in time. You know, so, so, yeah. And I would agree with you. That's not Paul's mandate, and that's not why we care about Paul. It's important to what Paul's mandate is, but it is not why you care. So Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, this is important. This is why Paul has, stand, has standing. Did Paul found their church? No. Did Paul instruct them? No. Did Paul die for them? No. Did Paul pray for them? Probably. Probably. But does that mean somebody who, just because somebody goes, I've prayed for you, does that mean they get to tell you things? <laughs> they might be completely weird. I mean, let's stop. Imagine you're in Walmart and somebody walks in and he's like, hey, I need to tell you something. I've been praying for you and there's something you need to know. Who are you again? <laughs> are you sticking around or you'd be like, um, somebody get this Get this guy off of me. Help, run! No. Those don't matter. Paul's apostleship matters. Now, what does it mean to be an apostle? Well, there are standards. There are rules here, and they mattered, they mattered then, therefore they matter now. So, Acts chapter 1. It is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So in other words, you couldn't just show up one day with the 11 and go, hey guys, I would like to submit my application to be an apostle. One, we, who called? Two, where'd you get that form? Three, no, we pick you, not the other way around. You had to be there from the beginning. You had to know. Now, this is also why your history of your gospel is so vitally important. Paul tells you, let's see, let's do Bible trivia part two. You ready? So, you're exempt. <laughs> of whom was Paul a student? As a Gamaliel. He's a student of Gamaliel as a Pharisee. Now, why is Gamaliel special? Why do we care? What does he do? What does he do? He's a teacher in Israel. What council does he sit on? He sits on the ruling council of the Sanhedrin. You see him in Acts 5. That's Paul's teacher. I point that out because how was teaching done in the ancient world? Well, synagogue system was there, but when you found a teacher, what did you do? Hint, hint, look at your gospels. Yeah, you went to work. When dude went to work to teach, what did you do? I'm going to go sit on the council one day when he retires off. How do I learn how to sit on the council? I go. There's students. There's teaching. There's, there's examples being done. When we go have a debate, what are you going to do? You're going to go along so you can see the debate. So you see, here's the arguments you make. Here's how you refute that argument. These are the things that you do. All those interactions that the council is having with John, all those interactions that the Pharisees are having with John the Baptist, all those interactions that the council is having with Jesus, this is why John as a gospel is so important, because it gives you the stretched out context of all those times Jesus is in Jerusalem, all those times he's arguing with the leaders, all those times the Sanhedrin is making plans. Who's part of making these plans? Gamaliel's making these plans. The council's making these plans. His students are just sitting in the corner going, hmm, 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 we don't know what he's doing. Hmm, 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 hmm. They're learning. They're following. 
Paul has known about Jesus for how long? Why do you think he's so angry when you get to the book of Acts? And why do you think he wants to crush them so badly? He's been trying to get rid of these people for years. Years. And that's who gets blinded on the road to Damascus. And that's who gets redeemed. And that's an understanding of why he can be this apostle to the Gentiles. Is he has been there from the beginning. But more than that, he doesn't just decide this on his own. Does Paul hop off his horse and go, not blind yet. Hold on. Hold on. Somebody get a mule. Kick me. Okay, now I'm blind. All right, now I can go in there. I got a good story. Is that how this works? No. God strikes him. God brings him. God calls him. God prepares him. God sends him out. Um, Acts 9. There was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. It's always a good way to get somebody's attention. Call their name, right? And he said, here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, get up. Go to the street called Straight. By the way, cool note, that street is actually still there. You can actually look at a map. It, it, it actually goes through the entire length of the city. So, Inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. He has seen in a vision that a man named Ananias will come in and lay his hands on him so that he may regain his sight. Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. The Lord said to him, Go. He is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So does Paul decide one day, you know what? I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. Sounds like a good job description. That'll look pretty on a business card. I want that job. No, he doesn't. God decides that for him. Just like he said, you don't show up with an application and be like, I would like to submit my paperwork to join the apostles. Please see, there's my references, there's my past work experience. Thank you, I appreciate your consideration. Have a nice day. (laughs) Doesn't work that way. He is an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. It's the only way that happens. The only way that happens. Go back to John 6. Remember, Jesus is teaching the crowds. The crowds have been following them, and he starts saying some things that they don't really like to hear. So what does the crowd do? Begins to disperse and go away. And Jesus asked them, hey, you guys, you guys leaving? And they're like, um, no, where else would we go? We have nowhere else to go. And Jesus reminds them of why this is true in verse 70. Did I myself not choose you, the 12? They were chosen by him, not the other way around. Now, why do I make a big deal out of this? This is why we don't use the term And this is also why I don't trust anyone who does. And I'm serious about that. I'll get a business card, I'll meet with people, and you'll find, well, this is pastor so-and-so of this church, or this is bishop so-and-so of this church. That one doesn't bother me. It's a little pretentious, but it doesn't bother me. And then you'll always run across somebody and be like, I'm apostle such-and-such. That's like 17 red flags. That's like taking your red flag and going like this with it. Because what you're stepping into is saying, I stand in the line of the 12, the chosen by Christ, those who witnessed his ministry, those who were sent out as the pillars and building blocks of the church. Just do me a favor. If I ever begin to describe myself as a pillar or building block of anything, get me out of here, like immediately, please. What do we build on? We build upon Christ. What do we proclaim? We proclaim his word. The minute you become dependent on me for that, we've got bigger problems. 
I may not like a lot of things, but I am not the fount of all knowledge and the source of all truth, as much as I would like to believe that I am some days. <laughs> you don't have your drums, I'm safe. <laughs> there you go. Which is why I tell you to evaluate what I say, to think through. If you have a question, you should do what? Ask it. If I'm not willing to give you an answer, you know who's waving a giant red flag? I am. That's not how this game is supposed to be played. We had 12. One was an apostate, still chosen by Christ, by the way, so there are no accidents in this kingdom. And he was replaced by God for the mission that Christ would have accomplished, for the building up of his church, for the gospel going out into all the nations. Be wary, and this is why. I am not one that like, well, you know, if you're wrong on that thing, I wonder what else you're wrong on. I'm, I'm not a big guy on that because there's a lot of secondary theologies that we make big deals out of. But if you are a misunderstanding about the foundations of Christianity, where they are built upon and how you fit into them, that's not a wrong on one thing, wrong about other things. That's a misunderstanding of the foundations of faith. That is a misunderstanding of the ground upon which we stand. Miss that, and there's a whole lot of other things that can get built that become really shaky really quickly. That's why you always drill down. How many times am I trying to tell you guys, look past the argument, look to the foundations of the argument. What is the argument built upon? Don't argue up here, argue on firm foundations. Understand who you are, why you are that way, and why that matters to the way you live in this world. Do that, and you'll start running into a lot fewer problems when you run into the schemes and deceits of the world out there. So, all of that to finish up this verse. You ready? So, we've got Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. Despite all of that authority, despite all of that calling from God, is Paul sitting there alone on an island by himself? No. First of all, why shouldn't he do that? Biblical reason. Why shouldn't Paul do that? The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. <laughs> I, don't be serious. Look, I, my wife will vouch for this, so don't, don't ever be look at her at one time. <laughs> I am a very solitary person by nature. See, she's nodding her head back there. She's going to turn into a bobblehead and her head's going to fall off if she has to agree any harder. I'm a very solitary person by nature. I'm a type of person, you could just like leave me alone for a couple of days and I am okay. Eventually it starts to get a little annoying and I just like go sit in a coffee shop and watch people do weird things and then I can go home and I'm like, I've had my recharge. That's why if you ever pay attention, oh, I should, I should not tell you this, but I'm going to, I'm a bad person. So if you ever pay attention on lunch days, Am I running into the gym to go get my food and, and, you know, to be, like, social butterfly person? No. No, I'm not. It's not that I don't like you. It's just I, there, there is a battery that is beginning to drain the minute I have to deal with humanity. And there reaches a point where it's just like, <sighs> okay. And I just need a minute. So when the service is over, I take a minute, and then I can go have lunch. And I can sit, and I can talk, and I, I just need... just. Okay, I'm good again. <laughs> and, Cameron, and Cameron will vouch for this because I'll sit there at 2, 3 o'clock in the afternoon on a Sunday and it's like, who pulled my plug? And I, I just got to sit for a minute and then it's like, okay, I can function again. That's why if you ever see when we have breakfast or you ever see like on Christmas Eve service or anything like that, I'm just kind of floating around but I'm not plugging into anything majorly because I've got to save a few brain cells for other things. Now, I tell you all of that to tell you this. I need this. 
when I wasn't preaching, I was in church. It is not good for me to be by myself for any length of time. As much as I may say I enjoy it, and I do enjoy it, to be honest, it is still not good for me to have that separation from humanity. It is not good for me to be off by myself. I've told you this before. Christianity is not designed to be Clint Eastwood in a 70s Western, okay? You know the, you know the prototype. A Jew just sitting alone on his horse. Horse, scarf. Why did he always have the scarf? I never figured that out. You know, gun. No, who, who else does he care about? Who else travels with him? It's a terrible place to live. It's a terrible way to be. You will despise humanity. You will despise yourself. You will despise all the things of this world because you will determine them from your perspective. Don't be like that. Don't do that. It is not good that you are by yourself. It is not good that you are solitary and set apart in that manner. Now, how does God prove this to you other than just telling you it's not good for you to be alone? Remember your law? What was required to convict anyone of anything? Deuteronomy 19, a single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed, but on the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. And beyond just that, this is also hope for you moving forward. The gospel is not preserved in solitude. Do you have to rely on Paul? Do you have to rely on Peter? James, Luke. John, 1 Corinthians 15, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, although some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. That's Paul's testimony, reminding you what? You don't have to take my word for it. Go find Peter. Go find James. Go find one of the 500 brethren. There are people. This was done in mass. This is important, by the way, not just then, but this is important down through the ages of history. I mentioned earlier, read Hebrews 11 and marvel at some of the names. Always remember that Hebrews 12, when it talks about since we have such a great cloud of witnesses, is talking about the people in Hebrews 11. That's the witnesses. It's the history. It's the testimony. It's the confirmation down through the ages. This is why I actually like history for Bible study. This is why I think it's actually important that you have some function in the world that you live in, in the world the way that it was, and why I will bring that up when it is valid. You actually have confirmation of the working and moving of God down through the ages. We mentioned this in Sunday school this morning. I won't take a ton of time to do it here, but when you see things like the Great Awakenings of North America in the 18th and 19th centuries, those are built on thinkings and philosophies of the Enlightenment, which is moving back 100 years, which is built upon a reaction to the Counter-Reformation of the 16th century, which is built upon the challenging of authority of the Reformation of the early 16th century, which, by the way, is built upon the Renaissance thinking going all the way back to the 14th century. So you see a religious movement in 20th century America realize that its roots and its seeds are in... 1300s Italy. (laughs) Now stop and remember that there are no accidents in a kingdom ruled by God. These are not just random occurrences. You know, there's not just molecules. Oh, I can't go that way. Oh, I can't go this way. No, there is order and there is understanding and there is a working out of history 
that God is accomplishing. And this is again why I remind you, when you read your Bible, always remember we talk about our two timelines. There's the timeline, real people doing real things in real places, but there's also the work that God is doing overarching to get from beginning to end. That's what it looks like. It looks like time and movements and thinking and philosophies rising and falling, living and dying. And this is why I again tell you to be careful Because if you lose what your foundation is, the apostolic testimony to the work of Christ built upon the history of the Old Testament, the messages of the prophets built upon the word of God going all the way back to the beginning, if you lose that foundation, you do not realize the waves of history and thinking that are at work, that are pulling and carrying you across. That you you think, well, I'm just doing things because this is the way life is. No, no, you're doing it because that's the way life is because people surrendered to a philosophy two centuries ago on a different continent and you've never even thought about it. So stop and evaluate and think and realize that we come back to the beginning in all things. This is important. That's why Paul can tell you things like Galatians 1. I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another. But there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we... Or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you. He is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. Realize that what the expectation from Paul is, he expects those people to know that. He expects them to challenge even him. Paul's expectation is if I go back to the Galatian churches and I start proclaiming heresy, they're going to go, that's not what you told us last time. Would you do that to an apostle? Paul expected you to. He expected you to think. He expected you to evaluate. Why were the Bereans thought better of by Paul than the Thessalonians? Because Thessalonians heard what Paul said and said, that's awesome, we're in. And the Bereans went, time out. Check the scrolls. Hold on. Don't you, go, don't you even move. You got rocks? Okay, you got rocks. We're good. All right. Does that... That lines up. All right, now we're in. That's good. Again, patience. Slow. Thinking. Evaluating. Understanding. Which is, again, why I say, if you have questions, what should you do? Ask them. If we don't have answers, that should be a major problem. But we have to think, we have to understand, we have to be grounded upon the truth as Scripture reveals. So, we've made it through verse 1. Congratulations. <laughs> I promise you the rest of the book won't be this slow. Who's he writing to? To the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae. Oh, the computer hasn't woken up and caught up with this yet. There it is. To the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae. Notice how Paul refers to them. Let's remind you of something. This is why understanding who Paul was and who the Colossians are is so important. Has Paul met these people? No. Paul is what? Paul's a Roman citizen and a faithful Jew going back to his birth. A Pharisee of Pharisees, redeemed by the gospel. He's looking at a Gentile church and saying what? These are my people. That is not how the ancient world would have worked. That's not how humanity has worked. Let's be honest. What's the history of humanity? The history of humanity is all of these different cultures and skin colors and understandings just coming together and getting along perfectly, right? That's the history of humanity, right? (laughs) No, not even a little bit. That's not a new thing, by the way. That's 
humanity. Who do people like? Themselves. Therefore, if you're not me, what do I like about you? The things that are most like me. So I like people who think like me. I like people who do the things that I do. I like people who look like I look. This is the history of humanity apart from the gospel. What changes that? Christ. What says Jew, Greek, slave, free? Christ. What says culture pushed aside, gospel pushed forward? I've told you this before. I'm going to die on this hill. You should have more in common with the Christian on the other side of the world than you do the pagan who lives down the street. Your world, while the culture may be different, your commitment to Christ and your understandings of righteousness in this place and your willingness to walk against the demands and dictates of a sinful world should be identical, whether you are in North America, South America, Asia, Europe, or wherever. You should have more in common with their walk than you do with the pagan who walks in the culture that you walk in. If you don't, you look like your world. That is not the Christian calling day in and day out. And look, I get it. This is not an easy understanding. The world is forever. I mean, the world is forever doing what? Come here. The winds and waves of doctrine are pushing and pulling how often? Constantly. What is the Christian call? On what? A firm foundation in who? Christ, who has not left us unaware. He has given us his word. He has given us the foundation of the testimony of the apostles. He has given us the power of the Holy Spirit. He has given us the powers of regeneration. He has given us the righteousness from on high. He's given us all that we need to walk in this world in a way that honors and glorifies him and fights the good fight against sin and the corruption that is surrounding us. Will not be easy. It is not fun, but it is who we are in him. If it is not who we are, then what does that say about us? (laughs) Exactly. That is why Paul, to a group of people he does not know, to a culture that he does not share, can say, brethren, they are his, he is theirs, because they are all Christ's. Romans 11. Branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the tree. Do not be arrogant toward the branches, because if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. Peter, talking to the church, explaining to them the fulfillment of the law in 1 Peter 2. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the picture when you get to the end of the book, when you see the throne of God, Revelation 7. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation, all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, palm branches in their hands, and they cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. And all the angels are standing around the throne, and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped. God. This is again why, what is the first step in the gospel? Acknowledging your brokenness. And sanctification is what? A life lived against that brokenness. 
I don't care where you were. I don't care where you are. What do we care about in Christ? Where are we going? Don't make me sing, don't make me sing Backstreet Boys songs. You know I will. You know I will do it. And I will even dance. And nobody wants to see that. So, <laughs> But this, is, this comes from Paul's own lips. 1 Timothy 1. Remember, this is the one verse in your Bible you're supposed to argue with, right? You have permission from me to argue with one verse in your Bible. And here it is. Not this one. It is a trust. No, it is this one. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. You should argue with Paul because when Paul says, I'm the biggest sinner, you should say what? No, I am. Come, bring it. Let's go. Come on, old man. I got this. <laughs> that should be your reaction. When Paul says, I'm the chief sinner, you should say, no, you're not. I am. And then someone else should look at me and say what? No, you're not, I am. That's the one verse you're allowed to argue with. You are not allowed to argue with any of the others. <laughs> Yet for this reason, I found mercy. So that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. In other words, why does Paul say, I was as bad as they get? And look at how amazing and powerful and gracious and merciful God is. He can save even me. This is one of those reasons why I tell you it's not good to be alone, because you forget that. Because the longer you spend by yourself and away from the encouragement of the body, do you know what ends up happening? You start looking at the world as me and them. It's them. Who are they? They are those that are not us. <clears throat> this, is the, this is the first step in every pagan idea in human history, is a separation of what we call othering. Go find a veteran of any war, any war, in any country, from any culture, and you will get an answer to this question. What slang terms did you have for the enemy? There's a list. There's always, there's a list, isn't there? And you know what? They had them for you too. Every culture, everywhere, when you go to war with someone else, you have to be willing to kill them. The first step in being willing to kill them is to look at them as something less than human. I don't think of you as a person. I think of you as, insert your slang term here. We've done it for every culture under the sun, and every culture has done it for every other culture under the sun because it's called othering. It's an understanding that I'm me, you're something else, therefore it's okay for me and the people like me to do what? Get rid of you. The gospel says no. The gospel says there is no us in them. There is a humanity. Some of you have been redeemed and saved by grace. Therefore, proclaim his mercies and his excellencies and trust that if he can save you, he can save them as well. Paul gets a proof of concept in 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? You want to talk about a list. This is a list. Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor adulterers, nor, um, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. See, Paul can say, people like that aren't getting in. Oh, by the way, that was you. But you are now what? You are now something else. You have been transformed by the work of Christ. This is, again, I don't care where you've been. I don't care where you are. I care what. Where are we going? That's why. How many victories do we celebrate? What happens if they look like, I moved in the right direction today? We, yeah, this, this is good. This is work. This is good news. I don't expect you to be, you know, I don't need you to be Jonathan Edwards tomorrow. 
you know, sitting there at Princeton University and you know, writing theological treatises that people are going to read for the next 500 years. I, I just need you to keep walking. I need to keep walking. I need to keep going. And eventually we will knock down that wall. I don't care what that stupid French piece says. <laughs> Sorry. If you've never seen the Veggie Tales, it's one of the most, it's one of the best bad songs in history when the, the children of Israel are walking around the walls of Jericho and the little French piece, keep walking. But you won't knock down our wall. Keep walking. Oh, but she isn't gonna fall. It's plain to see. Your brains are very small if you think walking. Oh, we'll be knocking down our wall. <laughs> oh, Pierre, would you like to join me in my annoying little song? <laughs> and then they sing it again. So, yes. And to this day, that is the only French voice I will do. So, there you go. <laughs> but that's how we live. We walk, we trust, and we follow, knowing that his work is good, that his plan is good, and that he has not forgotten us. So, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. This is all good, because that fellowship, that understanding that we are God's people, actually produces something. Psalm 32, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. In other words, how blessed you are because God has redeemed you, because God has changed you, because God has transformed you. This is so good because this is where we rest and where we live each and every day. This is also why you can encounter the world. The war is over. You've won because God has won. Because he has accomplished salvation, and he has redeemed a people, and he has sent you out as emissaries, knowing that your future is secure. Because he is the only one who can do that. That's why this has to end right here. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, just as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to the adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. That is the work that God has done. That is the work that he has promised to fulfill. That is the work that he will not forsake. And he is doing that work day in and day out. He is doing that work culture in and culture out, language in and language out. In Christian, we can rejoice because it is part of the foundation upon which we stand, that we do not stand on our own wisdom and we do not stand on our own accomplishments, that we stand firmly planted upon Christ in all that he has done. And therefore, as we walk, we walk knowing that our pathway is secure. As the psalmist says, we can walk through the valley of the shadow of death and fear what? No evil. Because we have God. Because we are secure in him. That is what Paul is going to build on for the Colossian church. That is the foundation he is going to build up on and proclaim truth and understanding through. And we will be blessed by it as they were blessed by it. So, this will be where we're going to be till next year. It's going to be fun. Let's pray.